I've got about four messages stirring around on the inside of me today. Um, well, let's just start in Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. We've been uh, teaching a series on healing belongs to us and the different directions that I'm not sure which way to go yet all have to do with healing. So we'll just start, circle the airport for a minute, and then see where to land. Matthew chapter 8 and verse 16, speaking of Jesus, it says, When the evening was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word and healed all that were sick. He healed all that were sick. Didn't leave anybody out. Of all the people Jesus ministered to, of all the multitudes that he healed, there was not one person that he ever found that it was God's will to leave sick. I know the modern day church sometimes says, many in the modern day church at least, say that God uses sickness and disease to teach his people something and many times he wants some of his people sick so that he can teach them or that they can learn something. Folks, there is one thing to learn from sickness and that is it's evil. You don't have to be sick to know that. Jesus never found any of those people though. He healed all that were sick. That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet saying himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. Now he's referring to Isaiah 53 4 which says surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. From, in the King James it says that. But the words griefs and sorrows literally mean sickness and pains. So here's the Holy Ghost through the apostle Matthew giving us a commentary on what Isaiah 53.4 means. I think that's significant because God saw through the portals of time and saw that the modern-day church, our modern-day church, would argue against sickness and disease being paid for by the blood of Jesus. They would argue whether or not healing is a part of God's redemptive work. They usually say, say it this way, healing is not part of the atonement. But atonement is an Old Testament word. It means the covering over of sin. Jesus didn't cover over anything. He redeemed us. To redeem means to remove, to do away with once and for all, to pay the price and to remove sin. So many people will say that they will try to spiritualize Isaiah 53 verses 4 and 5. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken and smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we were healed. A lot of people try to spiritualize that. They'll say, well, God healed us spiritually. You can't find anything in the Bible that talks about spiritual healing. It's never mentioned. See, the problem for the unbeliever, the problem for the unsaved, it's not that their spirits need to be healed. And when somebody comes to give their lives to Jesus to be born again, they're not healed spiritually. They're made a new creature. Ezekiel said it this way. Ezekiel 36 says this way. I will take away the old, the old spirit, the stony heart of the old spirit out of him and put a new spirit within him. And then I'll put my spirit in that new spirit. That's what Ezekiel identified the new birth process to be. Not a spiritual healing of any type whatsoever. But a new birth. A new creation. And the Bible says if any man be in Christ he is a new creation. 
a new species of being. He's not a healed, unsaved person. He's a new creature made in the image and likeness of God, restored to the image and likeness of God in spirit. So there is no such thing in the Bible as spiritual healing. So it can't be spiritualized, but here the Holy Spirit is showing us that it's not spiritual healing that he's talking about in Isaiah 53. He healed all that were sick. Jesus healed all that were sick that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. Thank God he did. Notice the fulfillment of Isaiah. He took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses is fulfilled only by healing all that were sick. See, when the Bible says with Jesus stripes or by Jesus stripes, we were healed. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, our sicknesses and our pains. If anybody's left out, then Jesus didn't do a complete work. Now look with me over to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13. It says, Christ has redeemed us. From the curse of the law being made a curse for us. For it is written. Cursed is everyone that hangeth on the tree. For this purpose. Verse 14. That or so that. The blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ. And that we might receive the promise of the spirit through faith. Now look with me to the 29th verse. The last verse of the chapter. And if you be Christ. Then are you Abraham's seed and heirs. According to the promise. Now, the word redeemed in verse 13 is the Greek word that means to buy up or to ransom or to rescue from loss. Remember, Jesus said, the son of man cometh not, but for to seek and save that which is lost. What was lost? Mankind was lost. But what was mankind lost to? Turn back with me to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 tells us God's plan for man, original plan for man in creation. Verse 26, after God has made everything in the earth and supplied the earth and filled it with every good thing, he said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea. And over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. Folks, it is an undisputed fact that God's one purpose in creating man was for him to have dominion or authority on the earth. God made man the God of this world. Now, what does that mean? Well... God said, let man have authority. If man has authority over the earth, that means God does not. God didn't say, let us make man in our own image and let us share our authority with him. It's not what he said. He could have done it that way, but it's not the way he said it. He said, let man have authority on the earth. Now, Psalm 2, speaking of the the angels at the time of creation, it said the angels were astonished. Paul refers to this in Hebrews. He said the angels were astonished at the point of creation, the creation of man. They said, what is man that thou art mindful of him and the son of man that thou visitest him? 
Thou hast made him a little lower than the angels. King James says angels, but it's the Hebrew word Elohim. It means God himself. You have made him a little lower than yourself. Well, God said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness. That means God made man an exact duplicate and copy of himself in kind. And the angels were astonished because the angels are not created in the image of God. And so the angels said, what is this thing called man? Now, whatever was here on the earth before, in the pre-Adamic ages, that Satan destroyed to cause the world to be without form and void when the story picks up in Genesis 1-2, whatever was here before was not man. Now, I don't have any answers on that. I don't even know what questions to ask. But according to the Bible, whatever was there was not man. And so the angels are saying, what is this thing called man? This new creature that you've come up with called man. He's not the first spirit being God ever created, but he's the first one that he ever created as a copy of himself. And the purpose, according to the Bible, for him doing so, making man in his, in his image a copy of himself, a duplicate of himself in kind, was so that man would have authority. The angels are astonished and say, you put everything that you made under his authority. What is man that thou art mindful of him? Thou crownest him with glory and honor and gave him dominion over the earth. The angels identify, God, you've given dominion over the earth. Now, I would imagine, this is just my thinking, you judge this for yourself, but I would imagine the angels have in mind what Satan has already done to the earth when God first created it. The Bible says he made it a wasteland. He brought civilizations to ruin. So I'm thinking that the angels are looking back to that and saying, now you gave a certain degree of authority to Lucifer and look at what he did to the place. Now you're going to give it to man, the recreated earth, you're going to give to man and make him to have dominion over all the works of your hands. Folks, the hidden secret shouldn't be hidden. It's not hidden from the truth of the word, but it's hidden from the modern day church. The unknown truth is that man has always had authority on the earth. Man didn't lose that authority when when Adam fell in the garden. If he had, then there would have been no instruction in the word to keep the law of Moses. There would have been no instruction for man to choose life over death. Because if he's lost authority, then he doesn't have the authority to choose one way or the other, does he? He's just left to the work of the devil. Whatever the devil decides he's going to have, that's the way it's going to be. Satan didn't gain authority in the earth. He gained a presence in the earth. Yeah, but the Bible says Satan is the God of this world. The word that's translated world in 2 Corinthians or 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, where it says Satan is the God of this world, means time. It doesn't even mean that Satan is the God of this world system. He's not. This is the same world system that God instituted when he recreated the earth and put man in charge of it. Satan didn't, create, didn't change God's system. He doesn't have the power to change God's system. Satan can't change gravity. 
It's part of the system God set up on the earth. If he could, he'd just undo gravity and we'd all float out into the regions of space and everybody would die all at once. It says his purpose is to kill, steal, and destroy. He could take care of everybody in one swoop. He doesn't have that authority. Man has authority over the earth. Man has authority over the system that God established for this world. Now, we just saw in Galatians chapter 3 that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. What is the curse of the law? Well, the curse of the law very simply means the consequence of God's broken commandments. The consequences of God's broken commandment. Now, what was the first commandment God gave man? Look to Genesis chapter 2. Let's start reading in verse 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. He's got work to do. He's been given authority and dominion over the earth and he's given a job to do. To dress and to keep it. To guard and protect it. If there's no enemy here, there's nothing to protect it from. It wasn't a surprise to Adam to find out there was an enemy here. God's already identified that to him. So he told him to dress and keep the garden. And the Lord God commanded. Everybody say commanded. So here's the law of God. The Lord God commanded the man saying of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. One translation says blessing and calamity. Thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. In the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Now, what death is he talking about? Can't be physical because he didn't die that day. But something did happen to him when he ate of the forbidden fruit. He died spiritually. Now, folks, here's something I want to try to get across to you. And I'm just seeing some of these things myself in increasing light. Let me say it that way. I'm getting more and more light on this. And I don't have it yet like I want to get it. But the source of man's authority, the source of everything on the earth in the Garden of Eden that worked according to God's plan was because of the life of God that was in Adam's spirit. It was because God breathed into him the breath of life. His spirit, the spirit of God, inhabited and indwelt Adam. And it was the source of everything that he had It was the source of every part of the dominion and authority that he was given. It was the source of every day of health that he walked in before he fell. It was the source of every thing that the earth produced for him. It was the source of every bit of success. It was the source of everything. Everything that Adam enjoyed in the Garden of Eden. A world without sin, a world without the consequence of sin was because of the life of God that was within him. Adam didn't try and fail and then try again and succeed and find out how things worked. Every bit of the knowledge he had came from the knowledge that was within his heart and that which God revealed to him. He had a mind that was untainted by sin. There was no presence of sin whatsoever. 
Now notice what the, what the consequence of disobedience to God's commandment is. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. He said, in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Please notice what God did not say. God did not say, in the day that you eat thereof, you shall become a sinner. Sin is not the problem. Now, the Bible speaks of sin singular in reference to spiritual death. The problem is not sin. The problem is spiritual death. Romans 5.12 says it this way. It says, wherefore, as by one man, talking about Adam, wherefore, as by one man, sin entered the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, not sin, death. See, the problem with the sinner is not that he sins. The problem with the unsaved is not that they're sinners. The problem with the unsaved is that they're spiritually dead. And that's what happened to Adam. When the Bible says that they they ate of the fruit of the tree, their eyes were opened. Well, what eyes? The physical eyes didn't change. Blackness didn't come upon the earth all of a sudden. The moon didn't go dark or the sun didn't go dark. The stars didn't fall from heaven. Physical laws of nature didn't change. Their spiritual eyes were opened. Open to what? Open to what life is now like without being united with God. That's what spiritual death means. Spiritual death means separation from God. Now, everything that came upon the earth that we know of as a curse or evil came as a result of death passing upon the earth and upon all men. The consequences of spiritual death that they have now chosen to enter into begin to take hold on the earth. The earth doesn't produce for them like it used to. It brings forth thorns and thistles. The only way it produces now is by the sweat of his brow, which indicates or implies at least that the earth produced in a different way before that, maybe by the words of his mouth. It's the way the earth produced for God and Adam's made in God's image. So that's certainly possible. It's at least worth considering. But now the earth brings forth thorns and thistles and is only going to produce by the work of his hands or the sweat of his brow. And sickness begins to plague mankind. I want you to notice, folks, the way that God created the earth, the way he intended it to be and the way he delivered it to Adam was for man to be united with him in spirit without sickness, without disease and abundantly provided for in everything that he does. Now, the Bible says God never changes. The Bible says God can't change. God said it this way, I am God, I change not. Well, I think that pretty much settles the issue, for me at least. I am God, I change not. That means it can't be a different will for God concerning his people today than it was when he first made man on the earth. If it was God's will for Adam to be united with him in spirit, which he was, And to walk free from sickness and disease, which he did. And for the earth to produce for him and provide for him abundantly, which it did. Then that has to be God's will today. Or else the Bible's a lie. If the Bible's a lie, then we have no way to know God in any form whatsoever. And we have no basis for salvation. God's will never changes. 
Never has, never will. And so therefore, everything Jesus did when he came to the earth was to recover that which was lost. He brought healing to the sick, deliverance to the captives. And he provided for the people in material ways when it was necessary. He showed them the way back to God. He showed them the way to be born again. Now, if Jesus came to recover that which was lost, what we see was lost was man's union with God. He came to restore man back to his original position. Now, let's look at some of the, the, let's prove it to you from another angle. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Let's see what Moses tells the people that the curse of the law is. We'll start reading in verse 15. But it shall come to pass, if thou wilt not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe to do all of his commandments and his statutes, which I command thee this day, that all these curses, everybody say curses, all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. Folks, he's going to make a list of things that won't happen to you. Because Christ has redeemed you from this stuff. Cursed shalt thou be in the city and cursed shalt thou be in the field. Cursed shall be the basket in thy store. That's poverty. So poverty is a curse of the law. Cursed shall be the fruit of your body and the fruit of your land. The increase of your kind and the flocks of your sheep. See, these things are supposed to work to your benefit. But as a consequence of spiritual death overtaking the world through Adam's sin, poverty became a curse upon mankind. That's not the way that this world was created to function. And Jesus came to recover that which was lost. Cursed shalt thou be when thou comest in, and cursed shalt thou be when thou goest out. The Lord shall send upon thee cursing, vexation, and rebuke, and in all that thy saddest thine hand for to do, until you be destroyed and until you perish quickly, because of the wickedness of thy doings, wherefore, whereby thou hast forsaken me. Folks, I want you to realize something. One of the main ways that the devil will work against you is try to make you think that what you do is cursed. You can hear testimonies of other people prospering. You can hear testimonies of other people receiving from God. And the devil will be right there on your shoulder and say, yeah, but it doesn't work like that for you. He'll even agree with you that the curse of the law has been broken by the work of Jesus. But still something is wrong with you. You're cursed. You may not know why. You may not know how. But somehow or another stuff just doesn't work right for you. That's one of the biggest lies that there is from the pit of hell. You remember in Balaam's day, Balaam, who was a a prophet, not a prophet of God, but he was a, a prophet that was hired by Israel's enemies to prophesy against Israel. Folks, you need to realize something. There's power in words. There, there's power in words that are spoken. There's power in words that are spoken over you, but there's more power in words that are spoken by you because you're the one that has authority in your life. And so these enemy kings of Israel wanted Balaam to prophesy against the children of Israel. And even in a backslidden 
separated from God condition, Balaam said, who can curse whom God has blessed? Even he knew that. Well, the question is still a good one to ask today. Who can curse whom God has blessed? You're the one that's blessed. There is no curse over you. Every so often somebody will come up and say, Pastor Mike, would you pray and break a generational curse over my family? Who can curse whom God is blessed? If you're in Christ Jesus, there is no generational curse. Yeah, but sickness and cancer and whatever other diseases just run rampant through my family. Folks, there are genetic traits that are passed down from generation to generation. And there may be things in your genetics, just like there may be in mine, that make me susceptible to some of the things that my father or grandfather were susceptible to. But that doesn't change the truth of the word that Christ has redeemed you from the curse of the law. What the devil wants you to do is focus on the same things that's happened to you that happened to your mama or your daddy or your grandmama or your granddaddy and make you think there's something that's wrong, something in the works that's keeping the word of God from making its truth a reality in your life. And nothing could be further from the truth. Say this after me. I am blessed. I am am not cursed. I I cannot be cursed cursed. because I'm blessed of God. God. Now think about what that means. That means you're blessed in your finances. That means you're blessed in your business. That means you're blessed in everything you put your hand to. That means you're blessed in your body. You need to get big-headed about I am blessed. Now, if you don't want to walk in it, that's okay with me. But I'm going to. The Bible says it's mine. Jesus paid a heavy price for it, dear price for it. He paid his own blood for me to be blessed, so I'm going to be blessed. And that should be the attitude that we take no matter what happens in the world around us. Where to leave off? Verse 20. The Lord, verse 21. The Lord shall make the pestilence cleave unto thee until he has consumed thee from off the land, whether thou goest to possess it. The Lord shall smite thee with a consumption and with a fever and with an inflammation and with an extreme burning and with the sword and with blasting and with mildew, and they shall pursue thee until thou perish. Skip down with me to verse 27. The Lord will smite thee with the botch of Egypt and with the emeralds and with the scab and with the itch whereof thou canst not be healed. The Lord shall smite thee with madness and blindness and astonishment of heart. And thou shalt grope at noonday as the blind gropeth in darkness. And thou shalt not prosper in thy ways. And thou shalt be only oppressed and spoiled evermore and no man shall save thee. Verse 35. The Lord shall smite thee in the knees and in the legs with a sore botch that cannot be healed. From the sole of thy foot until the top of thy head. Skip down with me to verse 50, uh, 58. If thou wilt not observe to do all the words of this law that are written in this book. Notice this is the book of the law. Christ has redeemed you from the curse of the law. These are all curses according to the law. If thou wilt not observe to do all the words of this law that are written in this book. That thou mayest fear this glorious and fearful name, the Lord thy God. Then the Lord will make thy plagues wonderful. And the plagues of thy seed, even great plagues and of long continuance. And sore sicknesses and of long continuance. Moreover, he will bring upon thee all the diseases of Egypt, which thou wast afraid of, 
and they shall cleave unto thee. Also every sickness and every plague which is not written in this book of the law will them, them will the Lord bring upon thee until thou be destroyed. Now, I don't know if you were keeping count, but there are 14 individual sicknesses and diseases that are mentioned in the verses that we read. They include consumption or tuberculosis, skin diseases, the scab and the itch, the sore bunch of Egypt, which is probably leprosy, fevers and uh, all fevers, scarlet fevers, typhoid fevers and so forth, eruptive fevers and such. 14 different diseases that are made mention of. And then it speaks of all the diseases of Egypt. Egypt is a type of the world which they were afraid of, that they knew about and were afraid of. So apparently there were more diseases that they knew of in Egypt that were not mentioned in these scriptures. And then verse 61 says, also every sickness and every disease not mentioned. Stuff you don't even know about. Then will the Lord bring upon thee until thou be destroyed. So folks, I want you to understand, Christ has redeemed you from the curse of the law. The Bible says very specifically that the curse of the law involves three things. First, spiritual death, which is the consequence and the the source or the origin of every other curse that there is. Christ has redeemed you from the curse of the law. He's redeemed you from spiritual death. Secondly, he's redeemed you from poverty. Thirdly, he's redeemed you from every sickness and every disease. So where it says Christ has redeemed you from the curse of the law, Christ has redeemed you from the curse of every sickness and every disease. Now, we're going to have to take a few moments here and explain some things. Because reading from the King James, the Bible talks about the Lord shall smite thee and shall bring this and that and the other upon you. So reading from the King James alone, we would have to conclude then that God would sometimes use sickness and disease. But that's not true. And here's the proof for that. Dr. Robert Young, who was the author of Young's Analytical Concordance, of the Hebrew and the Greek, he was a, a, the, most, the foremost Greek and Hebrew scholar of his day, used to have a book. It's been out of print for a long time, and, and I've got probably 100 people looking for it, looking for a copy of it for me. Everybody thinks they find it when they find the, the, uh, the notes in the concordance that refer to this, but it's a separate book. It's been out of print for a long time. The name of the book was Hence the Bible Interpretation. And Dr. Young brings out, points out, that in the Hebrew language, there is a tense of a verb that the English does not have. It's a permissive tense that's always translated in the King James in the causative sense. So where it says, the Lord will smite thee, it literally means the Lord will allow you to be smitten. Now, before we go into that too much further, he uses three examples to point this out. So that you could understand, even if you didn't know the Hebrew language, you could understand how this would be true and and see it for yourself. The first is in Isaiah 45, verse 7. Isaiah 45, verse 7, God says, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Notice it says, I, the Lord, create evil. Does God create evil? If he does create evil, then he has no right whatsoever to judge the devil for being evil. If God is the source of evil, he has no right to judge any person for participating in evil or to judge them for the evil that they do. 
If evil is just as much of God as good is, then what difference does it make whether we do good or evil? We would be following God's creation, that which is of God one way or the other. This word create in the word in the Hebrew language has a variety of meanings. One of the meanings is to cut down like you cut down a tree. Don't take my word for it. Look it up for yourself. Any concordance will show you that to be true. The translators, and I've made this comment many times, but I need to make it again in this context. A translation is based on two things. First, the translator's understanding and knowledge of the language that they're translating from. Second, their understanding and knowledge of God. Because just as in this case, there are words that could be translated a number of ways, several different ways. And the way that they choose is based on their understanding of what's being spoken of or their understanding of God. So they had a choice in this case. Do we translate this as create as in to make, which is one of the meanings of this word? Or does it mean to create, I'm I'm sorry, or does it mean to cut down as a tree? Well, let's look at the context and see which is true. I form the light and create darkness. Here's the word create. What's he saying? Well, what does light do to darkness? It dispels it. God looked into the darkness and said, let there be light. And there was. So what's what's the intended meaning here? Well, the Bible shows us the intended meaning should be I form the light and cut down darkness. I make peace and cut down evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. But because the translators were so focused on translating these these verbs in the causative sense, they translated it as as if the meaning was to make. I make darkness and I make evil. But God doesn't do that. We know that from the rest of the Bible. Look with me to Amos chapter 3. Here's the second example that he used. Amos chapter 3 and verse 6. Shall a trumpet be blown in the city and the people not be afraid? Shall there be evil in a city and the Lord hath not done it? Was God doing the evil in the cities? Is God murdering people in the cities? Is he stealing? Robbing? behind the rapes that take place in the cities of our country according to the bible he is according to this translation he is but we know that's not the case now what does that mean well somebody would say yeah well pastor mike i see where you're going with this god may not make people sick but he allows them to be sick well folks if you leave this service this morning and go rob the store down the street god will allow you to do it doesn't mean he wants you to certainly doesn't mean it's his will but he will allow you to do it because you're the one that has authority in your life you're the one that makes the decisions if god was ever going to take authority over a man's will he would have done it in the garden of eden and stopped adam from eating of the fruit of the tree but god does not take authority over your will why because he gave authority to you in the earth it means he doesn't have it Maybe an example we could use to point this out would be all of us have had situations where our children or somebody we know, somebody's kids that we know of, have burned themselves on a hot stove. 
Well, they certainly learned something by that experience. But that wasn't your way of teaching them. In fact, you probably warned them ahead of time. Honey, don't touch that. It's hot. You'll burn your fingers. But kids being the way they are, thinking they know best, reach their hands in and grab hold of stuff that they shouldn't anyway. And they learn something. Well, here's the question. Why didn't you stop that? Why didn't you prevent that? Well, they were doing it when I wasn't looking. Or I tried to prevent that. Well, why didn't you lock them in a closet so they could never touch anything hot? (laughs) Folks, I know it's a silly expression, but that's about the only way we can ever keep our kids from never being hurt. By the way, they call that child abuse. (laughs) Well, God's not a child abuser. Man is a free moral agent. God will let you perform evil. God let Adam perform evil. He stood back while he did it. Watched him do it. Watched him choose to exercise his authority to disobey God's commandment. Shall a trumpet be blown in the city and the people not be afraid? Shall there be evil in the city and the Lord has not done it? God's not the one doing evil in the cities or in the countries either. The third example he uses is in 1 Samuel chapter 16. This is talking about Saul. Saul has disobeyed God several times, disobeyed the prophet's instruction several times to the point where God repents that he made Saul king and he makes David king instead or anoints him to be king. It's many years before he ever takes the kingdom. But it says in verse 14, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 14, but the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. Is that where evil spirits come from? Do they come from the Lord? Well, that's what the King James translation says. But an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. Now, here's the translators doing the same thing, translating a permissive verb into the causative sense. What actually happened here? Well, the spirit of the Lord did depart from Saul. But why did he depart from Saul? Because of Saul's disobedience. Saul, over a period of time, Yielded to the devil's influence again and again and again to the point where the devil had even greater influence over him and troubled him by the presence of an evil spirit. But it wasn't from God. If evil spirits are from God, then Jesus disobeyed God every time he cast one out. That'd have to be true, wouldn't it? Jesus would be doing contrary to God's will if evil spirits come from the Lord. He would have been doing contrary to God's will every time he set somebody free from the power of the devil. Yet Jesus said, I came not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. He said, everything I do, I do because the Father shows me to do it. So evil spirits don't come from God. Did God permit it? Yeah. Why did he permit it? Because Saul continued to yield to the devil's influence. He got further and further and further into sin. Now, folks, there's an important lesson you need to realize here, and that is the more you yield to the devil's influence, the more influence he has. Nobody starts off from zero and gets possessed by an evil spirit. They walk step by step by step into the devil's oppressive work and oppressive influence. But the reverse of that is true, too. The more influence you give to God and God's word in your life, the more influence God has over you. 
So here we've got examples, three examples of what Dr. Young was telling us about these verbs being translated into the uh, causative sense when it should have been into the permissive sense. So let me go back and read some of these verses from Deuteronomy 28 again. Verse 22 or verse 21. The Lord shall allow the pestilence to cleave unto thee until you be consumed from off the land, whether thou goest to possess it. Why? Because of disobedience to his word. Disobedience brings the curse. The Lord shall allow thee to be smitten with a consumption and with a fever and with an inflammation and with an extreme burning and with a sword and with blasting and with mildew and they shall pursue thee until thou perish. Verse 27, the Lord will allow you to be smitten with the botch of Egypt and with the emeralds and the scab and with the itch whereof thou canst not be healed. The Lord will allow thee to be smitten with madness, mental illness and blindness and astonishment of heart. And thou shalt grope at noonday as the blind gropeth in darkness and thou shalt not prosper in thy ways. And thou shalt be only oppressed and spoiled evermore, and no man shall save thee. Verse 35, the Lord shall allow thee to be smitten in the knees and in the legs with a sore bite that cannot be healed from the sole of thy foot until the top of thy head. Verse 58, if you will not observe to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, notice it's up to you. The curse is conditional, and it has room and power and influence to operate through disobedience. Never was God's will. Never was God's plan. If thou wilt not observe to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that thou mayest fear this glorious and fearful name, the Lord thy God, the Lord will allow your plagues to be wonderful, terrible literally, and the plagues of thy seed, even great plagues and of long continuance and sore sicknesses and of long continuance. Moreover, he will allow upon thee all the diseases of Egypt, which thou wast afraid of, and they shall cleave unto thee. Also every sickness and every plague which is not written in the books of this law, then will the Lord allow upon thee until thou be destroyed. Now why is he allowing this? Because he's not the one that has authority over it. Because sickness is a very real force in this world. This world that man has been given authority over. This world that man has dominion in. God's not the one that has dominion over sickness and disease. Man does. Because it's of the earth. Now folks again. If God's will is for any of his children to ever be sick. Then sickness is going to be present in heaven. If God teaches his children through sickness. Then sickness of heaven will be full of sickness and disease. But nobody ever thinks about that. Nobody that has the gall to say that God teaches people through sickness and disease. Ever stop to think about God's will being done in heaven. See, where there is no sin, there is no spiritual death, there is no sickness and disease. Jesus came to restore that which is lost. Turn with me to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, Jesus is speaking to his disciples on the night that he's betrayed. Some of the last things that he says to him. He's talking about departing and going unto the Father. I want to start in verse 1. These are usually fern, fern, funeral scriptures. You know what a funeral is, don't you? <laughs> These are usually scriptures that are pointed out and spoken of and referred to in, uh, at funeral services. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. 
In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there you may be also. I grew up hearing that God's building mansions in heaven. And when Jesus gets all the mansions built, then he's going to come back for the church. Now, he created the earth in six days. But it's taken him thousands of years to do the work in heaven to build houses. He was a carpenter, you know. <laughs> the word mansion means abiding places. He's very simply saying there's room for everybody in my father's house. That's all he's saying. That's all he's saying. There's not even any scriptural reference that we're going to live in houses in heaven. Now, I know that bothers some wives. <laughs> Pastor Mike, when we get to heaven, we'll met, we'll, my husband and I live together. No, he paid that price here on the earth. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean to say that. <laughs> I did though, didn't I? Heaven is a place of eternal rest and comfort. But there's no scriptural reference. There's no indication that tells us for certain that we're going to even live in houses in heaven. Why would you want to be separated from the throne of God any time that you're spent in heaven anyway? I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm guessing I'm going to spend most of my time there. What is he talking about? He's talking about a place in him. He's talking about being in Christ. In my father's house is many mansions. There's room for everybody. Now, notice what he said. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. How did Jesus prepare the place for us? Through his death, burial, and resurrection. Not through building houses. I go to prepare a place for you. Verse 3, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there you may be also. Please notice he does not say that where I'm going you're going to be too. He does not say, I will come and prepare a place. For, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'm coming to receive you to myself. That's receiving Jesus as your Lord and Savior. That's being born again. So that where I'm going in heaven, you can be too. He says, so that where I am, there you can be. Where was he? Well, first of all, he was united with the Father. They tried to kill him on several occasions because he said, my Father and I are one. He's talking about being united with God. Just like Adam was in the beginning. Jesus came to restore that which was lost. So the first thing he does is tell them that he's making a place for them so that they can be united with God, not subject to the spiritual death that's passed upon all men. Now, what other place was he? Well, that union with God provided Jesus a means to exercise authority over the devil in everything that he did. Jesus walked in victory over every aspect of the consequence of spiritual death. He was never without. His needs were never without being met. He conquered sickness and disease while he was here on the earth, not, on the, not just on the cross. 
He exercised authority over sickness and disease while he was here. So what he's telling the disciples is very simply this. Because I'm going to prepare a way for you to come into union with the Father. For you to be one with the Father like I'm one with the Father. You can be in the same place that I am here on the earth. Walking in complete and total victory over the devil and all of his works. All of his power. He goes on a little bit later in the chapter. Verses 12, 13, and 14. And talks about doing the same works that he did. How are they going to do the same works that he did? By being in the same place as he was. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. He's come to redeem us. And he has, past tense, already done it. Redeemed us from the curse of spiritual death. He's redeemed us from the curse of poverty. And he's redeemed us from the curse of sickness. Now turn with me over to Luke chapter 13. What does that look like? Here's what it looks like. Verse 10. And as he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold there was a woman which had a spirit of infirmity 18 years. And was bowed together and could in no wise lift up herself. Whatever this was. Paralysis. Arthritis. Whatever it was. She couldn't stand up straight. And when Jesus saw her. He called her to him. And said unto her. Woman. Thou art loosed from thine infirmity. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. And the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation. Because that Jesus had healed on the Sabbath day and said unto the people. There are six days in which men ought to work. In them therefore come and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Then Jesus answered him and said thou hypocrite. Does not each one of you on the Sabbath day loose his ox or his ass from the stall and lead him away to watering? And ought not this woman, here's God's attitude to those that are bound with sickness and disease. And ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, lo, these 18 years, be loose from this bond on the Sabbath day? Two reasons Jesus said she deserved to be healed. Number one. She's the daughter of Abraham. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, the curse of sickness. So that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles. And if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Does she deserve it any more than you? No. Well, here's God's attitude. God never changes. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If this was Jesus' attitude then, 2,000 years ago, it's his attitude now. Ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Second reason he gives is that Satan bound her, whom Satan has bound these 18 years. Folks, everything Jesus did was to destroy the power of the devil. John writes to the church and says, For this purpose was the Son of God manifest, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came to the earth, showed us his place with the Father to destroy the works of the devil. Well, if he's made a place for us to be where he is, what is our work to destroy the works of the devil? Peter preaching in Cornelius' house in Acts chapter 10 and verse 38. said, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and power. Who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil. 
for God was with him. What's Peter telling us? Peter's telling us that sickness is always satanic oppression. It's satanic bondage. And just as Jesus said this woman ought to be free because she's the daughter of Abraham. Number one. Number two. Because Satan has bound her these 18 years. He doesn't want you bound any more than he wants her. He wants the blessing of healing available for you as a member of his body. Member of his family. Just as much as he wanted it for her. Who had an Old Testament promise. Healing is good. It's always good. James 1.17 James says. Every good and perfect gift comes down from above. From the father of lights in whom there is no variableness. Neither shadow of turning. That means good is always good. What was good then is good today. What's good always comes from God. And can only come from God. Some people bless their hearts in their stupidity. I'm talking about ministers, Christians too, but ministers will say that sickness is used by God to teach his, teach his children. And sometimes the devil heals people. They'll tell people, stay away from those churches that preach healing. That stuff's of the devil. Now, isn't that an interesting thought? 2,000 years ago, it was the devil making people sick and Jesus was the one healing them. Now, all of a sudden, in their modern-day thinking, God and the devil have swapped jobs. It's God making people sick, and it's the devil that's doing the healing works to try to discourage and detour people from the truth. How stupid can you get? seems to me somebody with just a modicum of intelligence would see the difference between that and what the Bible says, which leaves out a lot of ministers, I know. I've seen preachers tie themselves up into knots to deny the truth of the word. Is sickness a blessing or a curse? The Bible says it's a curse. I want to show you one last thing. Turn with me over to Romans chapter 4. I've been kind of all over the place this morning. Let's start in verse, four, verse 13. Romans chapter 4 verse 13. For the promise that he should be the heir. Talking about Abraham. For the promise that he should be the heir of the world. Was not to Abraham or his seed through the law. But through the righteousness of faith. Now I want you to realize something folks. Paul is talking about. He's going to show us Abraham's example of faith. Notice he speaks of it. As a principle, remember the Old Testament is given to us as types and shadows. In other words, the Old Testament doesn't show us the, the, the true picture, but it points to the true picture that was fulfilled in Jesus. Tell me this. When was it ever promised to Abraham that he'd be the heir of the world? Let me read verse 13 again. I want you to get this. Abraham was promised land, and in Genesis chapter 15, it tells us the boundaries of the land, from the Euphrates River all the way to the other rivers, and I don't remember what the boundaries were. But you know the story I'm talking about. For the promise that he should be the heir of the world. Here's the Holy Ghost inspiring Paul to say that Abraham, the covenant God made with Abraham, was so that Abraham would be the heir of the world. Well, he can't mean that in a physical sense. 
Because the land of Israel was not supposed to be the whole world. What is he talking about? He's talking about Jesus restoring that which was lost. He's talking about Abraham through the imputation of righteousness. That just means that righteousness was counted unto him. He didn't earn it. And it wasn't given to him like it's given to us because Jesus hadn't shed his blood as our sacrifice and our substitute. But Abraham was promised to be the heir of the world. That means the promise that God made to Abraham that was fulfilled in Jesus was to restore man to authority in the world like Adam had before the fall. What else could it mean? Are you with me? Do you see it? For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. That's us. Guess what that means you're the heir of? You're the heir of the world. That doesn't mean the island of Samoa belongs to me. It means I'm restored to a place of authority in the world. Just like Adam was. For if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void and the promise is made of none effect. But the law worketh wrath for where no law is, there is no transgression. Therefore, it is a faith that it might be by grace, the finished work of Jesus to the end the promise might be sure to all the seed and not only to that which is of the law, the Jews, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham who is the father of us all, the Gentile church. As it is written, I have made thee the father of many nations. Another translation says of whom, speaking of Abraham, of whom it is written, God said I've made thee the father of many nations. I want you to notice folks that God always speaks in the past tense. Because once he plans it, once he speaks it, it's good as done. I have made thee the father of nations. Before him whom he believed. Before him whom he believed. The margin of my Bible says, has a little number there next to the word before. And in the margin it says like unto. Like unto. It's saying that Abraham... And the faith that's our example was like unto God in two respects. He quickened the dead and caused those things that be not as though they were. Now, the first part of that used to throw me. How does Abraham, which is clearly speaking of, how is Abraham supposed to imitate God in quickening the dead, making dead things alive? Well, the answer is in the last part of the verse, by calling those things which be not as though they were. Abraham was like unto God by calling those things which be not as though they were. And he brought dead things back to life. He called himself the father of nations. And even though his body was not functioning in a reproductive manner to have children, neither was Sarah's womb producing anything that would be able to have children. He brought dead things back to life through calling things that be not as though they were. Through the exercise of his authority, 
which is what verse 13 is talking about to begin with. Through the exercise of his authority, through the spoken word, he brought dead things back to life. Now, folks, if faith was not necessary, then number one, Abraham's faith wouldn't be given to us as an example. If faith was not necessary, then why didn't God just do it and say, by the way, here's what I've already done. Don't worry about what you call yourself. Don't worry about what you say. I want to make sure you have children. Which is the way that a lot of the church wants God to work. But God doesn't have authority in this earth. God didn't have authority over Abraham's body. God didn't have authority over Sarah's body. He can only gain access to utilize his power to bring them back to a place where they can have children physically through the exercise of Abraham's authority over himself and his wife. So what does he do? God has to get Abraham talking about the right things. It's his plan and purpose all along. He wants them to have children. He's prophesied that they'll have children. He's promised them children. But he's got to get him talking about the right things. He's got to get him saying the right things. In the same manner, folks, it is God's will for each one of us to walk in divine health all the days of our life. But he's got to get us talking about the right things. He's got to get us saying the right things. Christ has redeemed you from the curse of poverty, but he's got to get you saying the right things for the blessing of God to bring it to pass. God's redeemed you from spiritual death, but he's got to get you saying the right thing to make it come to pass. He, got to, he had to get you saying that Christ was your Lord so that he could save you, so that he could bring to you the salvation that Jesus accomplished 2,000 years ago. If he can't get you saying the right thing, he can't bring his plan and purpose to pass in your life. He can't make his blessings real for you, even though Jesus paid for them. Can you see that? Abraham was likened to God in two respects. He called those things that be not as though they were. He began saying, I'm the father of nations. He began saying, my name is Abraham. I am the father of nations. Before he had children, he's saying, I am the father of nations. According to God's promise, he's saying before he ever has a child, natural born child, he's saying, my seed is as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. He's calling things that be not as though they were. And what did it do? It quickened his body. It brought life to his flesh. Proverbs 14.30 says, The sound heart is the life of the flesh. We'll say it this way. Being made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus is the life of the flesh. How does that work? By you saying that the life of God is in you by you saying that the life of God quickens your mortal body see if there's something in your body that's not working you bring it back to life by calling those things that be not as though they were if something in your body is not working you bring it back to life you bring it back to operation operating condition by calling yourself healed or calling yourself well by the stripes of Jesus. That's how we operate like unto God. That's how we follow Abraham's example of faith. In trusting him. Does that make sense to you? 
As it is written, I have made thee the father of nations before or like unto him. Whom he believed, even God who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were. Now, this is the place where people get hung up. Well-meaning Christians, people that are thoroughly saved, love God with all their heart, oftentimes yield to the devil who says, if you're saying something that's not true physically, if you're saying you're healed when there's sickness in your body, then you're lying. Well, folks, the Bible says it's impossible for God to lie. So if you're saying what he says, it's impossible for you to lie. That's the hurdle that everybody who receives from God has to jump. That's the hurdle you're going to have to clear. You're going to have to clear the thought, the temptation of the enemy, that calling things that be not, according to the word, calling things that be not as though they were, is telling a lie. But if you're telling or speaking of yourself what God's word says about you, then you're always on good ground to say, Mr. Devil, I'm just saying what God says. Go take it up with him. I'm not saying I'm well because I see myself well. I'm not saying I'm well because there's no presence of sickness in my body. I'm saying I'm well because the Bible says I am. As it is written, I have made thee the father of many nations before him or like unto him. He believed whom he believed, even God who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were. Who against hope believed in hope without anything his physical eyes could tell him to hope in. He still chose to believe in hope. What was the source of his hope according to that which was spoken? Who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations. According or because of that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. I hope to become the father of nations, so I'm going to say what God says. I've already been made the father of nations. Well, do you have any children, Abraham? No, but that doesn't have anything to do with it. God said I would. God said he's already made me the father of nations. I say I'm healed by the stripes of Jesus, not because there's no presence of sickness or disease in my body, but because the Bible says so. Do you have anything in your natural circumstances to hope in? No. Circumstances may even be getting worse. Well, then what do you base your hope in? That which was spoken. Jesus took my infirmities and bore my sicknesses, and with his stripes I am healed. Why do you do that? Because I hope to become healed in physical form. The Bible says healing belongs in two forms. Healing exists in two forms. First, by faith, spiritual reality. Second, physical form, physical reality. Jesus said, whatsoever you pray, when you believe that you receive them, whatsoever things you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. You believe that you receive them in spiritual form, spiritual truth. Jesus said you would have them in physical reality. This is what Abraham's doing. Folks, I want you to understand something. Abraham didn't have a tape series to listen to.
He couldn't get the podcast to listen to over and over and over again. So what did he have to do? He had to listen within his own heart to what God said again and again and again. Verse 19, and being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about 100 years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. I like this from another translation. Let me read this to you from the American Standard. No, I'm ahead of myself. Wait a minute. That's not verse 19. It's verse 20. Being not weak in faith, which is a choice, by the way. Some people have the idea that, other, that others are just stronger in faith than they are. You're as strong in faith as you choose to be. Because you have authority. You have authority over your own faith. You have authority to be strong in faith or to be weak in faith or to be absent of faith, without faith. Being not weak in faith, by choice, he considered not his own body now dead. He didn't deny the fact that his body wasn't producing in a reproductive manner. He didn't deny the fact that he was too old to have children. He just didn't consider it. Because after all, what difference does the condition of his body make when God said, I've made you the father of nations? If God is able to perform for that which he's promised, then what difference does it make how things look today? See, this is what throws a lot of people. They start believing God for healing, but then the pain doesn't go away. So they say, how can I claim that I'm healed when there's pain in my body? What does pain have to do with the truth of the word? The Bible says everything I put my hand to prospers and Jesus redeemed me from the curse of poverty. So what difference does it, wake up, does it matter if I wake up tomorrow with a sore back? Pain wouldn't have anything to do with the promise of prosperity. Pain doesn't have anything to do with the promise of healing. This is what Abraham looked past. He looked beyond. Being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body. He didn't deny the, the, the facts in his physical form physical body he didn't deny that his body was past the age of having children he just didn't give attention to it now here's a great truth folks when something becomes more important to you than your symptoms then you're on the right track when the word of god becomes more important when it becomes more real to you than the symptoms in your body you're on the track to receive being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about 100 years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. Verse 20, he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. Here's the one I want to read to you from the American Standard. Yet, looking under the promise of God. Well, if he's not looking at his body, what is he looking at? He's looking at the promise of God. Yet, looking at the promise of God, he wavered not through unbelief, but waxed strong through faith. How do we know he was strong in faith? Giving glory to God. Verse 21, and being fully persuaded, fully persuaded, fully persuaded, fully persuaded that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. And therefore, it was imputed or counted unto him for righteousness. Folks, it hadn't been counted unto you for righteousness. You've been made righteous. We have the opportunity to follow this example of faith because the righteousness of God has already been made unto us. Because Christ has already redeemed us from the curse of sickness and disease. 
So what are we to do? Same thing Abraham did. Say of ourselves what God said about us. Not looking under the circumstances or symptoms in our body, but looking under the truth of the word. What will that do? It'll make dead things in our body come alive. Because we're calling things that be not as though they were just like God. Children of God should act like their father, shouldn't they? Children of the devil sure like like theirs. You're the one that has authority. You're the one that decides. Sickness and disease are very real forces in this world. But you decide whether or not the blood of Jesus was sufficient to keep you free from it. You and I are the ones that decide. I've decided to walk in health. I've decided to call myself well. I've decided to call myself healed. I've decided to call sickness and disease gone in the name of Jesus. Null and void. Because Christ has redeemed us from the curse of sickness. Amen. Stand up with me. Let's make a confession. Close your eyes and raise one hand toward heaven and say this after me. According to the word of God, Jesus took my infirmities and bore my sickness. And with his stripes, I was healed. Christ redeemed me from the curse of sickness so that the blessing of healing would come upon me. Therefore, I say that I am healed by the stripes of Jesus. I call my body well because the word of God says so. I call my body healed in the name of Jesus. I refuse to allow sickness and disease in any form to remain on my flesh. I say that the life of the flesh comes from within. The spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free. It's not going to set me free. It has set me free from the law of sin and death. The life of God in my spirit permeates every cell of my body, quickens every cell in my body, and causes it to function in perfect harmony with God's divine health. I am healed by the stripes of Jesus. Now lift your other hand and thank you because that's true. Hallelujah. 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 We look unto your promise, Lord, and we won't waver. We refuse to stagger through unbelief. We refuse to speak to the contrary. But instead, we will be just like Abraham's example. Like unto you, we will call those things that be not as though they are. And we will bring dead things back to life by the power of the Spirit of God within us. Oh, thank you, Father, that healing flows through your church like a river. And salvation rises as the tide. Thank you, Father, that your healing power draws the unsaved into your family. Thank you, Father. 
that healing is ours now. We're not waiting. We're not looking for something else to happen. It's ours now, according to your word. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Well, okay, I can go now. I got about three of those messages out. Thank God for his word. The gospel, what Jesus has accomplished, is the power of God into healing. God's word spoken by you is the power of God to heal your body. Thank God that's true. Amen? Say it with me. Thank God I'm healed by the stripes of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us. You're dismissed.